Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning, Candy. I'm excited, Ashley, because as you know, we put out our call for listener suggestions. We did. And we have had several people send them in. I know. Thank you, guys. We just love hearing from you. Please keep them coming. We really want to take your input and have you more involved this year in Scandal Water. But today, we had a suggestion from a person you're actually going to get to hear from. That's right. In a second. But first, I wanted to ask you, this will give everybody a little hint here. Ashley, I know you've had a background with photography. Mm-hmm. Would you share a little bit about why you think photography is such an important medium wow. or, or art? I guess it, it's an art form. It is an art form. I think that it captures a moment. There's the phrase, a picture's worth a thousand words. Mm-hmm. And you can just, it's so interesting to have a moment captured in time that you can study. And it represents not only that moment in history, but you can see the emotion, the feeling. And I, I don't know, I just think it's really important to have photography be a part of our culture and things that we study along with art in itself. I agree. I agree. In fact, I, I, I know I always come in with this, you know, educator stance, but there are so many times when you will be studying something that nobody in the room has lived through. Yeah. And you can, I mean, you know, I love reading and the written word, mm-hmm. but sometimes even the most descriptive passage cannot convey something that if you've never really experienced yes. or seen it, yes. and a picture can make such a difference in bringing something to life. There's a black and white photo that I have as a magnet. I made it a magnet. I printed it offline and it's in my editing room and it is of a woman after I believe it's after the bombing in London and she's sitting on the rubble that used Mm. to be her home and she's sipping a cup of tea and it's just such a powerful image Mm -hmm. to me that no matter how bad things get there's still hope there's still a moment to just reflect and at least you have your life at least you've got yourself and your health and all that. Which you bring to light another important point. Like this is just a single image, mm-hmm. but you were able to take a message from mm-hmm. it. Like it mm-hmm. communicated a theme to it did. you. Yeah. Yeah, they can be so powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, as I'm sure you figured out, this episode is going to have something to do with photography. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would start with a few fast facts about photography in general. Okay. First of all, the earliest known photograph is entitled The View from the Window at La Grasse, and it was taken by a fella named Nisiphore Nipsey in a commune in France somewhere between 1826 and 1827. We're going to put this in our show notes and in our social media so you guys can look at it. It's so interesting to see. But here's what this fella did. He wanted to use a light sensitive material so that the light itself would basically etch the image for him. Mm. It's very technical, but the University of Texas gave a little explanation of a very complicated process that made some sense to me. So here's what they said. When he let this petroleum-based substance sit in a camera obscura for eight hours without interruption, the light gradually hardened the bitumen where it hit, thus creating 
creating a rudimentary photo. He developed this picture by washing away the unhardened bitumen with lavender water, revealing an image of the rooftops and trees visible from his studio window. And I know you've seen it, Ashley, too. Mm-hmm. It's kind of grainy. Yes. It's a little blurry, but it was revolutionary because this changed, like, it was such a technological advancement. Here's something that I found out. That plate itself went missing. Oh, no. And eventually was found in storage in an unknown crate decades later in 1952. 1952? When was it taken? It was taken between, they don't know if it was 1826 or 1827. Wow. And I don't know how long it was missing. I don't know when it actually disappeared. Yeah. But for quite some time, and then we have it. How does that happen? You know, know. stuff just goes missing. You're like, hey, my grandma has it in her attic in a crate. What? That's amazing. It is. I was just thinking you're also, when you take a photograph, you're also capturing a memory. Mm -hmm. So you're looking back at a moment for more casual, not, not the iconic photographs, but maybe just the photos you and I will take. We see something and we want to remember it. So we take a photograph of that so that I can always remember this moment in time. Yes. Well, that was all the first fast fact. Here's another. That same fellow that we've just been talking about, Nipsey is his last name. He was brilliant, of course. He partnered with a man named Louis-Jacques Mende Daguerre for years working to come up with a process for photography. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he passed away before the two were able to like realize their dream together. Mm-hmm. But on August 19th, 1839, Louis Daguerre shared his daguerreotype process. <laughs> Named with, it after himself, I see. Yes, he did. <laughs> with members of the French Academy of the Sciences and the Academy of the Fine Arts. And basically, this was the introduction of commercial photography to the world. Wow. And because, did you notice that date? Because that's when he introduced it to the world, we now celebrate National Photography Day on August 19th of every oh. year. Starting back in 2010. That's really cool. I thought so too. I loved hearing that little backstory of how we we now have photography today. Of course, we've got it on our our cell phones. But yeah, all of this to say, we took this idea from our friend and friend of the show Jefferson, who sent in a listener suggestion Mm -hmm. that is related to this idea. We'll let you hear from Jefferson, and then we'll explain how he led to what he influenced the episode exactly. Hey, Candy and Ashley, this is Jefferson Moore. On the subject of famous photos, I was wondering if you've ever considered doing an episode on the tragic story of Evelyn McHale. She was the attractive 23-year-old bookkeeper, born in 1923, who sadly took her own life by jumping from the 86th floor of the Empire State Building. The photograph of her almost pristine, lifeless body on the street below was published in magazines around the world, including Life and Time, which captioned it, The Most Beautiful Suicide. Just a suggestion. Keep up the good work. Cheers. Wasn't that nice? That really was nice. And what an interesting suggestion. Had you heard of that photograph before? I had. Okay. Yes, I had. I had not. Yeah. And he, he actually uh, um, mentioned it to me back when we did our Black Dahlia episode as something that we could look at in the future. And then when you and I were kind of casting around for people who had given us suggestions, I was like, oh, what if we did this? I remember the photograph and I remember the story just being so heartbreaking and tragic. And it just yes. kind of felt like it would kind of meld well with our episodes 
on Alfred Hitchcock, you know. Mm-hmm. And then as we were starting to look at this idea, it was such a such a great suggestion. But in terms of fleshing out a full episode, we mm-hmm. thought, what if we expand it just a tiny mm-hmm. bit? What if instead of just the one photo, we make it a little broader and we basically center this idea of around historical photos? Iconic historical I- photos. Exactly. Yeah. So we're actually going to be talking about three today, starting with the very one that Jefferson was just talking about. Again, I'd never heard of it. Mm -hmm. And this was very surprising to me, to be honest, Mm -hmm. that that this was a photo. It's such a sad situation, so tragic. But when you start to research, this photo comes up on so many lists. It's influenced a lot of stuff. It is viewed as a very iconic photograph, and it has influenced a lot of artists. We'll mention a few of those in a minute. But my first little foray into researching it led me directly to the original source, Life Magazine, May 12th, 1947, Mm. listed and shown showed this picture as their picture of the week. We'll talk more about the photo in a minute. Uh, Jefferson did a great job describing it, but basically it was this huge blow up of this lovely, lovely woman who was laying on the top of a crushed car in death. And the caption on the page preceding the photo says, On May Day, just after leaving her fiancé, 23-year-old Evelyn McHale wrote a note, quote, He is much better off without me. I wouldn't make a good wife for anybody. Then she crossed it out. She went to the observation platform of the Empire State Building. Through the mist, she gazed at the street, 86 floors below. Then she jumped. In her desperate determination, she leaped clear of the setbacks and hit a United Nations limousine parked at the curb. Across the street, photography student Robert Wiles heard an explosive crash. Just four minutes after Evelyn McHale's death, Wiles got this picture of death's violence and its composure. And then on the photo itself in the bottom corner, it had a caption that read, At the bottom of Empire State Building, the body of Evelyn McHale reposes calmly in grotesque beer, her falling body punched into the top of a car. And it's so iconic because it looks like she's just asleep. There is no evidence that she has passed away at all. There's no blood. There's no broken bones. There's nothing. Her, from what I remember, her feet are crossed. Mm -hmm. She has a glove in her hand. She just looks like she's asleep. Yes. In fact, the rare historical photo site, they had an article about the most beautiful suicide. And here's an observation that they made. Quote, her calmly elegant demeanor, her legs crossed at the ankles, the way the car's metal folded like Mm -hmm. sheets and Mm -hmm. framed her head and arms. Perhaps these were the reasons that McHale's death was given its title as the most beautiful suicide. When she died, she was still wearing her pearls and white gloves. Yeah. And I mean, it's just so tragic. And she is just absolutely beautiful in that picture. And that is why, as we've said, when you start to Google iconic photos Mm -hmm. or important photos, significant significant photos, it appears time mm-hmm. and time again. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, one of the lists that I saw it on was history's collection of 20th century photos that changed the world. Mm-hmm. Taylor Swift, in one of her videos, it was actually the Bad Blood music video, has a little bit of an allusion. Really? To, yes, she does. I oh. looked it up to look at it. Andy Warhol, back in the 60s, 1962 to be exact, did a print mm-hmm. that was referencing this based on this. It has been something that people have been fascinated by and they've honored or referred back to many times over the decades. Mm -hmm. 
But because her tragic death has been so sensationalized, mm-hmm. I wanted to find a little bit out about her life. Yes. So I'm going to talk to you just a little bit about what I was able to discover. It was actually pretty hard to find actual biographies or, or sources, news reports. What I came across was this one, basically a blog article that had been referenced in both a Time Magazine article and Wikipedia. I saw the Wikipedia article. Yes. They both seem to feel that this was a very credible source. So a lot of what I'm pulling is from... From a visual culture blog called Codex 99. Okay. Here's what they said. Evelyn Frances McHale, or Ebby, as her family called her, was born, as Jefferson said, in 1923 in Berkeley, California, the sixth of seven children to Vincent and Helen McHale. But her family life was a little unstable due to her father's frequent job changes and her mother suffering from what the author suspected was very likely depression. Although they pointed out in this article that in the 1930s that was not a condition that was diagnosed very often, Mm -hmm. nor was it treated. Because of all this, Helen and Vincent's marriage suffered, and by 1940, Vincent had left the family, moved to St. Louis, where he became a stockbroker. The couple divorced, and it sounded as though Vincent was awarded custody of all the children. Mm. So Evelyn, at some point, was with her father in St. Louis, and that is where she attended Normandy High School. And according to the saga, the school's yearbook, quote, Evelyn was certainly quiet at times, but she could hold an intelligent conversation about practically any subject. After she graduated, Ebby joined the Women's Army Corps, where office machine operator was listed as her occupation. And then in late 1944, she moved in with her brother and sister-in-law in Long Island, and she took a job as a bookkeeper with an engraving company in Lower Manhattan. It was during a New Year's Eve party in 1945 that she met Barry Rhodes, who was an ex-Army navigator who was studying engineering under the GI Bill. They dated, became engaged, and they planned a June 1947 wedding. But But this is where the author of the blog comments that, unfortunately, it seemed that Evelyn had inherited her mother's depression. At least according to Evelyn, she felt that she had, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the summer of 1946, Barry's brother, Perry, married, and they had asked Evelyn to be a bridesmaid. And reportedly, after that wedding, she tore off her dress and said, I never want to see this again. Mm -hmm. And Barry, at some point, told the reporters, quote, she worried for some silly reason because she was afraid she was not good enough to be my wife. I thought I talked her out of that silly notion. So on April 30th, 1947, Evelyn visited her fiance in Easton. It was his birthday. So everyone assumes it was to celebrate his birthday, his 24th birthday. Mm -hmm. And another quote from Barry was, she often voiced fears of not being a good wife. But when I kissed her goodbye, she was happy and as normal as any girl about to be married. So she left from him. I think she had stayed overnight in the family's home. And then it was the next morning. She boarded the train back to New York at 7 a.m. on May 1st. Barry said, I don't know what her last words to me were. She had to run for the train. Mm. She arrived at Penn Station around 9 in the morning and then she went across the street to the Governor Clinton Hotel where she spent about an hour apparently composing a suicide note on their stationery. She then tucked the letter in her pocketbook and walked two blocks east where just before 10.30 a.m. she bought her ticket to the 86th floor 
observation deck of the Empire State Building. It was about 10 minutes later that the patrolman, John Morrissey, who was directing traffic below, noticed a white scarf floating down from the upper floors of the building, and then he heard a crash. And what they obviously infer was that Evelyn had stepped out on the parapet and she had jumped, was able to clear those setbacks. A lot of, sadly, it was a thing that there were several people who had actually jumped Jumped. before she did. And some of them would not were, did not clear the setbacks, but she did, and landed on the roof of a United Nations limousine parked on 34th Street. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle reported, quote, four noon shoppers on Fifth Avenue were horrified. And that's when this fella, Robert Wiles, who apparently sometimes worked as a cabbie, but was also listed as a photography student in a lot of the newspaper sources at the time, he saw the commotion. He rushed across the street where, standing on the sidewalk, only a few feet away from the car, he took this very famous photo just four minutes after her death. Wow, wow. Later, as you know, they were investigating, a detective named Frank Murray found, depended on what source you looked at, it was either tan or gray, but it was her coat that had been folded over the observation deck wall, and there was a brown makeup kit filled with family pictures and a black pocketbook, and that's where they found her suicide note that read, I don't want anyone in or out of my family to see any part of me. Oh, gosh. Could you destroy my body by cremation? I beg of you and my family, don't have any service for me or remembrance for me. My fiancé asked me to marry him in June. I don't think I would make a good wife for anybody. He is much better off without me. Tell my father I have too many of my mother's tendencies. Mm -hmm. So her body was identified by her sister, Helen Brenner and according to her wishes she was cremated and there is no grave. Barry became an engineer and eventually moved south. He died in Melbourne, Florida in October of 2007 at the age of 86. He'd never married. I know he never married. And a point they made was that obviously there were a lot of people there present on that site when this happened and there were a lot of other photos taken that were printed. Oh really? Oh yeah lots of Mm. different pictures in different news media. I found some of those but it was Robert's photo that went on to be selected as picture of the week in Life Magazine and his is the one that is still remembered more than 75 years later Mm. they said he never published another photograph really Mm -hmm. I wonder if this just affected him so strongly I don't know and especially when she said I don't want to be remembered and here she has been remembered yes I mean it that's just heartbreaking I mean every bit of this is heartbreaking but on top of everything else she wanted to disappear right the one thing she asked for is the furthest thing from what happened yeah so sad what are your thoughts about this one it's so tragic it's so sad we just said that the thing that she wanted most was to disappear from history and she has with her last action become an indelible part of american history at least Mm -hmm. and i don't know my heart just goes out to her with what she must have been feeling and i also wonder if we've heard so many times where people who have decided that this is the course they want to take then become really happy and in a good mood because they've made their decision you know when they when they have decided that they are going to take their own life they kind of i've heard become more amiable and just like i I know what i'm going to do now so you're saying that's why she might have seemed so cheerful Uh as she was saying goodbye to him yes i this just absolutely this whole thing just really got me i think the thing that comes to my mind most is how sad it was that people had no support Mm -hmm. or the awareness of mental health issues was 
just not there at that time. Mm-hmm. Not to say that that obviously we don't have a lot of people who need help nowadays too, because we certainly, certainly do. Mm-hmm. But I appreciate that nowadays there's so much more awareness. Yes. And there's so much more talk of resources that people can use and Mm -hmm. more encouragement Mm -hmm. to try to reach out Mm -hmm. if you're struggling. And so I think that that is a positive development, but it's just such a such a tragic, tragic story picture in a way it's also very sad to me that this is an iconic photo yeah you know the fact that this is it feels a little like glamorizing this Mm -hmm. act and i would never want anyone to also commit an act like this in hope of finding that same glamorization Yes, that makes sense. Well, and I didn't write down the information, but there were some jumps after her picture Mm -hmm. was published. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is also something that we're more aware of nowadays is trying to take steps to make sure that we don't inadvertently, as you said, glamorize Mm -hmm. or encourage people to take steps like that that can be harmful to themselves or, you know, in some cases harmful to others by what we might do unintentionally. Yeah, I think part of the heartbreak of her photo is everything that led up to it and how she looked like on the surface she looked like she would have absolutely everything going for her yes and yet she had this inner turmoil that is sort of represented by this chaos around her it just it just breaks your heart every Mm -hmm. bit of it breaks your heart it really does and and yet I think I think that is why this photo has touched Mm -hmm. people I think you just said it it was that juxtaposition of this lovely lovely woman who looked just just like she should have had everything mm-hmm. surrounded by the chaos of what had just happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was definitely, if you're only looking at it from the art of photography, you can see that that is certainly a very captivating photo. Yeah, and it's, the sadness of she felt this would solve her fiancé's problems, that he would go on and find happiness. And while we don't know, he may have been happily single. The fact that he never married tends to lean toward the, no, you were wrong, Evelyn. You were the right person for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. It's just heartbreaking. It really is. Well, before we move on to the next photo, I did want to, Ashley and I both, I'm sure, want to, want to put this out there. Mm-hmm. There is a number, 988, that you can dial. It's the Suicide in Crisis Lifeline. You can call it. You can text it. And we would urge you, if you are struggling with depression or thoughts of self-harm, 988 is that number. Reach mm-hmm. out to that or to somebody else you trust, mm-hmm. somebody you know who, who I know will be there to help you. Yes. And you are not alone. Right. Well, we are moving on to a photo that's a little more upbeat, Ashley, which I think we can both use right now. Yes, we can use that right now. So a 2016 CNN article entitled 25 of the Most Iconic Photographs had a lovely gallery. Well, honestly, some of them were kind of sad photos, but very interesting. And the very first photo is the one we're about to talk about next. Most people refer to it as the VJ Day Kiss. I get to look at it every (laughs) single time we record. That's right. Yeah. Right behind me. Yeah. Some people call it the Kissing Sailor, I think. Oh. Yeah. Or at least they refer to the fella in it as, as the kissing, kissing sailor. sailor but yeah. yes this is the one we're going to talk about next why is it on your wall I just love this photo I love the faces I've got two photos that are companions where I can see them uh, the other one is a little it might be staged it may be a little less well known but it is another sailor who is kissing a girl in front of a train he's saying I don't know if he's saying goodbye or hello but something's happening <laughs> <laughs> the one over here is the the famous one and I had been trying to buy a poster size of this for myself for 
for years, but every time I would order it, it would be that photo, but it would be a different angle uh-huh. or it would be a different, it would, her feet would be cut off or whatnot. I finally got it and I bought it as a reward for finishing editing the Hepburn Girls. And I said, I'm going to find it. I don't care what it <laughs> takes. I just, I just love the whole iconography of it and the face of the other sailor in the background, the people smiling. There's just so much happiness. In the exuberance. Photo. Yeah. And the yeah. passion. Like, I mean, I don't even know if passion, not, not chemistry, romantic yeah. passion, just. Yeah. Cause it, you can see her feet. She's, she's in the middle of walking and he just grabs her. Yeah. You can, it's just this unbridled enthusiasm. Yeah. Now the caption underneath that photo in the CNN article says, Alfred Eisenstadt's photograph of an American sailor kissing a woman in Times Square became a symbol of the excitement and joy at the end of World War II. Yeah. The life photographer didn't get their names and several people have claimed to be the kissers know, yeah. over the years. A book released last year identifies the pair as George Mendoza, although that's how they pronounced it. Okay. It's spelled M-E-N-D-O-N-S-A. But okay. I did hear from George himself. And Greta Zimmer Friedman. She said in 2005 in an interview, suddenly I was grabbed by a sailor. It wasn't that much of a kiss. It was more of a jubilant act that he didn't have to go back to war. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I loved looking into this photo. How did they figure out that they were the two correct people? I am about to tell you. Oh, excellent. It was a whole story. Yeah. I am so excited about this photo okay. because I knew about what we, you know, as much as what was shared, I probably knew that much with it, minus the names. I didn't mm. know the names. Mm-hmm. Now, this is such a lovely story. That photo was taken on August 14th of 1945 on what became known as Victory in Japan or VJ Day when President Truman announced Japan's surrender. It was published as a full page spread in Life magazine a week later, which brought both the photographer, Alfred Eisenstadt, as we've already said, and this photo, instant fame. We've already said he didn't know their names though. Several women came forward over the years saying they were the woman in the photo mm-hmm. and at least actually they used the, the term over 20 men also claimed to be the kissing sailor. Well when Greta Zimmer Friedman first saw the photograph which was not until the 1960s she says she instantly knew it was her. So here's the cool part. She and that sailor, George, were both brought together in 1980 for a reunion organized by Life Magazine, the photographer with both of them. And then they got to both talk again in 2005 when they were interviewed for the Library of Congress's Veterans History Project. Oh, wow. It was in 1980 that they actually were officially recognized as the people. Okay. Okay. Now, first, First, here's why Greta said she knew it was her. Quote, it's exactly my figure and what I wore and my hairdo especially. So she knew it. She contacted Life. They sent her a copy of the photo, which uh-huh. was cool. But they told her the woman had already been identified. This is all prior to 1980. I'm okay. giving you the backstory. Okay, okay. Okay, so she, she knew it was her. She sent in more photographs. She was explaining, here's why I know it's me. Uh-huh. Time goes by, nothing. Finally, in for this 1980 reunion, she said they brought her in and they had decided because of evidence that George had sent in evidence as well. She sent in evidence and they took a photo of them in Times Square and they had the caption, it had to be you behind them they had them reenact the kiss we have it in our show notes them in 1980 and that was their acknowledgement that based on the evidence they had sent in their arguments they are now recognized as the couple that's so sweet and she said that she brought in the photo that they had sent her that all that time ago and she said the photographer signed it and apologized (laughs) (laughs) 
according to Greta and George, y'all, is it you precious? Can, you can go into that 2005 project, the Veterans History Project. You hear Greta <gasps> and George each tell the story in the interview. You hear it from them. I got a tear in my eye. I'm telling you, it's the cutest. Oh. Now, that is funny, too, because you know how it is. You're looking back on something that happened decades ago. There are little things that don't exactly match, match up. up. Mm-hmm. She's thinking it's like afternoon. He's saying it's early evening. You know, whatever. But they basically remember it the same way. Here's what happened. Greta was 21 years old. She was working as a dental assistant in an office in Times Square. In her oral history, she said that she had been hearing people coming in and out of her office all morning really excited saying there were rumors that the war might be ending Mm. so when her employers there were two brothers she worked for they came back from lunch and she basically took a break and headed out to Times Square because she wanted to find out if the rumors were true meanwhile George was 22 years old he was a sailor on leave and while he was out and about he met this 21-year-old beautiful blonde named Rita. They hit it off. He ends up actually kind of visiting her towards the end of his leave. Mm -hmm. She would go on to become his wife, by the way. He was very taken with this beautiful blonde, okay? Well, the two had been watching a show at Radio City Music Hall, and the show had actually been stopped with the announcement that the war was over. Oh, wow. So talk about excitement, all right? George commented that Times Square was wild. Yeah. And he shared that he popped into a bar to get a few drinks to celebrate rita had to be with him because mm-hmm. they're they're I'm, on this I'm date wh- why isn't it rita in that picture <laughs> she is in that picture she is in the picture he's she... kissing another woman in front of rita he did <gasps> but here's what happened okay rita. so remember they they're celebrating it's just jubilation everywhere but he realizes he and rita need to head back to rita's parents house because he's got to fly out that night yeah so they're heading back right to rita's house now this is about the same time that greta is around arriving in Times Square. And she said as soon as she got there, she immediately saw the lighted billboard announcing victory over Japan. And she barely had time to register when all of a sudden a sailor grabbed her and kissed her, George. So the interviewer asked Greta how she felt about the kiss. And she said, I felt that he was very strong. (laughs) He was just holding me tight. I'm I'm not sure about the kiss. It was just somebody celebrating. It wasn't a romantic event. It was just an event of thank God the war is over. Now, as for George, what he said was that it was the uniform that did it. And Greta acknowledged that her dental assistant uniform is exactly the same as what nurses wore. So according to George, he had had a time during the war where there was an experience where he had to help transfer wounded to a hospital ship. And he had an encounter there where he was like, he thought the nurses were amazing. He, different times he'd run into them. He said he had a lot of respect for nurses. And when he saw her, he thought she was a nurse. He literally said in the interview, I believe if that girl did not have a nurse's uniform on that I never would have grabbed her. Ah. They both agree they didn't speak afterwards. They both just moved on with what they were doing. They said people were kissing all around him. It was just the excitement. It was just ah. like this moment. So, so it wasn't like they were saying it's not romantic. It was thank you for everything you did, but he mistook her for a nurse. Yeah. It, ah. I, if I read it correctly, they did not say this in so many words. It was almost like you were in this war with me. Yeah. You have to be feeling the same yeah. jubilation I do. We are both so excited 
excited this is over celebration like yeah like kind of like i i almost picture it like the people at, at sports events that get so yeah, excited yeah, yeah. they're high-fiving and hugging yeah. strangers yes you know so rita was there like where is she they said that you have to blow the picture up a little bit uh-huh. but if you do that was one of the pieces of evidence he used to prove it was him is rita yeah that rita was like you could see her so somewhere in there if you blow it up a little bit you can see her we'll look it up and see if we can like i'm gonna go walk over there in a second and look (laughs) but rita and george did get married and in fact as at the time of their 2000 interview they had been together nearly 60 years that's so precious now there was one little bit of controversy Mm -hmm. they said in more recent years especially in light of the me too right i was gonna say this looks like sexual Mm -hmm. assault exactly people have literally said that people have raised a lot of objections Mm -hmm. to the fact that he grabbed her and kissed her without her consent Mm -hmm. both greta and the woman who conducted the veterans history project patricia redman have weighed in on that they Mm -hmm. both disagree Mm -hmm. greta talked about the fact that the cost of the war was so extreme people had lost loved ones their loved ones were over fighting you had so many people who were devastated by things that had gone on and when this news came of it being over she said george was just caught up in the relief of not having to go back to fight in the pacific and you know she just she just said he was just celebrating she did not she was not offended by it i think it's a hundred percent context if she had just been walking out on the street in any normal day during wartime whatnot and he grabbed her and kissed her yes that is that is assault but in the moment of celebration and also she didn't slap him afterwards she didn't say anything afterwards she just went on like she understood the context of the jubilation and the celebration so to me it is not that it is a moment of just joyful life is going to be different now celebration so that's why that's the emotion I feel coming off of it yes anytime you look at something related to history you have to think of context Context. and I think that it also was a different time yeah Patricia Redman that interviewer she actually agreed I think with what we just said Mm -hmm. in 2019 she wrote a comment the article in relation to this whole incident she was commenting on that to express her opinion she had become friends with both Greta and George after meeting them doing that project in 2005 at one point she told a little story of taking Greta to a friend's house to watch the movie Night at the Museum and she said Greta joked she only got one kiss when they had that little (laughs) kissing sailor scene yes Yes. so she felt like she knew Greta's stance very well because Uh they were friends Uh by the way Greta and George have sent each other Christmas cards all these years so they're not like close friends but they're friends friendly acquaintances and Greta thought Rita was lovely oh good by the way but going back to Patricia's comment she said this is just an excerpt she actually wrote a little more than this but here's here's an excerpt I know that they meaning Greta and George would be devastated to see this photo of history turned into something sordid and sinful the photo of the kissing sailor and Greta is one of the most iconic images of the 20th century signifying the end of years of war and should not be judged by today's standards 74 years after it happened right so that was her take on it I like that take yeah it also (laughs) makes sense now that I got it at the end of finishing editing a film which felt like my (laughs) own personal war I was out the other side it's a victory yes Yes. You know, that's interesting. I think what just talking about these two photos so far, that's another power behind photographs is the emotion it evokes in you. Uh-huh. Like this is a still photograph of somebody else's moment in time. Mm-hmm. And yet it resonating. Can, yes, it can just elicit such strong emotional response from you. Yeah. Well, before we talk about our third photo, why don't I take a short break? Let's do it. I'm going to go look at my picture and find Rita. 
as we venture through 2024 together, we would love to know what subjects you'd like us to cover. Sprinkled throughout the year, we'll be doing a variety of topics that are inspired by listener suggestions. Previous topics have included Selena, Paul McCartney, the Beverly Hills Supper Club Fire, Tori Murden McClure, and famous photographs. You can send us your suggestions by emailing scandalwaterpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you're feeling especially chatty, send us a voice message with who or what you'd love us to brew up an episode about. Cheers! And we are back to talk about another iconic historical photo. Yes. In fact, this is one that I think we've all seen. And honestly, just thinking about the photo itself, it's very disturbing. It's it's yeah. heartbreaking. Yeah. But I'm going to give you a little teaser that this, to me, ended up being a very uplifting Did story. Oh, yes. Good. Good, so good, good. hang in there. All this right, one's, we will. Yes. We're referring to the photo that many people refer to as the napalm girl. If you've ever seen this, it's a young girl running down the street. Her clothes has been burned off. Is that of what her. happened? They've been burned off? Yes. Okay. I'm going to actually fill you in on the All whole right. thing. But if, if you're picturing in your mind that picture, it looks like it's kind of outside of a village and you've got these people running away, fleeing, and you see the young girl with her arms out stretched with no clothing on that's this is the photo that we're talking about it is one of the most famous historical photos and it actually celebrated its 50th anniversary last year it won a pulitzer prize wow yes i mean we're talking a very 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 famous famous photo but the story touched me Mm. and i think you guys are really gonna be touched by this too So here's the whole backstory. In June of 1972, a 21-year-old Associated Press photographer, Nick Utt, was working as a photojournalist covering the Vietnam War. Now, he was born in Vietnam, although later in life at some point he did become an American citizen, so he was Vietnamese-American. Okay. But when he was only 15 or 16 years old, he was inspired to start doing this photojournalism work after his photojournalist brother was killed covering a battle. Oh. Yes. So, I mean... This young photographer was in the thick of things and very emotionally invested from yeah. a very young age. Yeah. So on this particular day, June 8th of 1972, Nick had gone to take pictures of an area that had recently been bombed. He had already done that work and was actually getting ready to leave when he saw a South Vietnamese soldier drop a yellow smoke bomb near a group of buildings. And he knew, he recognized that's a target signal. So he suspected what was going to happen. He picked up his camera and a few seconds later, he captured the image of a plane dropping four napalm bombs on the village. Yes. Well, when the bombs exploded at first, he didn't know whether anybody had been affected or injured because like from his perspective, as he had been working that morning, he thought the village was empty. Yeah. But many people were hiding inside the village temple. Mm. So as he kind of moved towards what was happening, he saw people fleeing them at Napalm. And I won't go into this, but he described a few of the people and some of the horrifying injuries he saw, including he saw a child that was dead. Mm. Then he heard a child screaming something about too hot, too hot, except of course it was in Vietnamese. Through his viewfinder, he saw this young girl who had pulled off her burning clothes and she's running towards him. And of course, as a photographer, he's capturing it all. He's taking these photos. But when 
when he heard her yell to her brother that she thought she was dying and she wanted some water, he put down his cameras, he he gave the canteen over so that she could have a drink. And then thinking that he was helping her, he actually poured some of his water on her body to cool her off. But that was not the thing that oh, you do. It? No, not with this kind of a burn. Oh. You don't do that. So actually that Made caused her that caused her more pain. From his own story, because at some point he wrote an editorial in the Washington Post, I believe. This is Nick telling this part of it. Still in shock and amid the confusion of everyone screaming, I put all the kids into the AP van. I drove them to Coochie Hospital since it was the closest to Trang Bang. That's where they were. The girl kept crying and screaming, I'm dying, I'm dying. I was sure she was going to die in my van. At the hospital, I learned that her name was Fawn Tai Kim Fu. She had suffered third degree burns on 30% of her body. Other mm. sources would say it was actually more severe than that. It depended mm-hmm. on the source. Mm-hmm. The doctors were overwhelmed by the huge numbers of wounded soldiers and civilians already there. They initially refused to admit her and told me to take her to the larger Saigon hospital. But I knew she would die if she did not get immediate help. I showed them my press badge and said, if one of them dies, I will make sure the whole world Ooh, knows. Good. Then they brought Kim Fu inside. I never regretted my decision. Once stable, she was transferred from Ku Chi to the Children's Hospital in Saigon and eventually to a burn unit there. But her injuries weren't the only hurt that she had suffered in the attack. She lost two nephews and one of her brothers was severely wounded too. Kim Fu was allowed to return home for just one day after a year in the burn unit. I went to visit her that day bringing toys and books from the Red Cross and fruits and cakes from the AP office. So that's him telling about that incident. Eventually, after a long time in multiple surgeries, Kim recovered and she went on to lead a full life. She married and the couple at one point defected to Canada where they raised their family. She and Nick stayed in touch throughout their lives. Kim said in an interview recently because of, you know, again, the, the, the celebration of the anniversary, he saved my life. I will never forget that for the rest of my life. That's why I call Uncle Ut a part of my family. Mm. As of last year, when this article came out, Kim Fu was still working at that time as a goodwill ambassador for UNESCO and staying active in her church. One of the sources commented that Kim always hated the photo because of the emotion that it would bring back and the fact that it made her feel like a victim. But in this interview last year, they they brought Nick and Kim together. I'm going to let you hear from her. Her, Kim herself, just a little bit of where she is now, 50 years later. After 50 years, I am not longer victims of war, but I have new picture about my life. The picture of love, hope, and forgiveness, that picture is um, it's about 50 years later. And uh, I am a survivor to calling out for peace. And that is so wonderful. And I'm so thankful for everyone who were there to help me. Did you hear that? I did. Now I'm a survivor and she works calling for peace. I loved that. Now as for Nick and his photo, not only did it win him a Pulitzer at the age of 21, as we've already said, many people have credited his picture with helping to bring awareness to the horrors of the war and therefore possibly helping to bring it to a faster end. Really? Yes. But in his interview last year, Nick commented that he also hopes the legacy of the image is that quote you need to help the people Mm -hmm. he said that he will even get specific when he's talking to young photographers nowadays he tells them you help 
when you have to, when you need to, yeah. rather than sticking to this non-interventionist code right, right, that a right. lot of photographers follow. He said, quote, if something happens, like with Kim, you need to help people. First, you need to help people before you leave. Save people's lives oh. first. Isn't that beautiful? It is. I mean, honestly, that was the most uplifting thing to me because I've seen that heartbreaking photo of this yeah. girl in such incredible pain with these people surrounding her who are also terrorized, also hurting. You don't know what happened right. to them. And to know that that she overcame and thrived yeah. and is actually helping other people and sending out messages of forgiveness and hope. I'm like, that's a beautiful story. It's also, I'm glad to hear that he put down the camera and helped them yes. instead of just oh, I'm going to photograph this trauma. He photographed it, but then when he realized, no, I need to start helping, that he did help he them did. and took them and stayed invested and went and visited her and brought her things. And, yes. And used his clout for good and said, if you don't help her, I am going to tell everyone that what you've exactly done. That is exactly right. I loved that. I and, and, the, and the fact that he's, they're both passing it on to the next generation. Yeah. He's telling other young photographers, this is what you do. This yeah. is the moral, ethical, right thing to do. I agree. Ah, oh, such a great story. By the way, I found some wonderful photos. There are pictures of them when they had this little reunion just I a year ago. I saw them hugging each other. Yes. Mm -hmm. And there are there's a photo when he went to visit her after she'd been in the burn unit for quite some time and he brought her gifts. Mm -hmm. you, you know, so he's a young, at that point, I guess he was 22 years old. Yeah. And it was so nice to see them together. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode because I'd actually planned to do another picture. Mm -hmm. We quickly realized we had a little more plan than we were going to be able <laughs> yes, to include yes, yes but we came up with an idea that actually came up with an idea that I think is fabulous. Yeah. As we've talked about before, we have this thing called Buy Me a Coffee. You may have heard our commercials. As you guys probably know, there are expenses that come along with podcasting, mm -hmm. different fees and different things you have to, to keep up with. And so this is one of the ways that we're able to keep the tea brewing. That's right. Yeah. So we just discovered that there is a way that we can do extra content on Buy Me a Coffee. And I thought it would be a good idea to start adding content in 2024. So one of the first things we're going to do, we're experimenting, is we're going to put the next section that she and I are going to record on Buy Me A Coffee for our supporters on there. So if you're interested in hearing it, go to buymeacoffee.com. And it's a fun Enjoy. one. It is and a fun I, one. We should tell them what it is. Sure, okay. go ahead. Give them a preview. The other iconic photo that I we didn't have time to talk about here is the famous flying dress. The Marilyn Monroe where she's standing yes. over the subway grate. Yes. Found out some really fun things about that. And so that will be that little bonus and, historical photo. Uh, Tom Yule has a connection to our hometown in Louisville. Brian's actually done a show with him. Really? Yes. How cool is that? I'll tell you about it in the section. I can't wait. <laughs> well, then a big cheers to, first of all, Jefferson. Thank yes, you for a wonderful listener suggestion. But also, how about to those photographers mm -hmm. out there who are making a difference, who are capturing these historical moments yes. for us? and These moments of humanity. And according to the titles of these lists, I mean, I'm just going to use their words. Some of these have changed our world. They have changed history. Yeah. So kudos to you. Yes, definitely. Cheers. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website 
www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandal Water community through our Scandal Water Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandal Water Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the hosts during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.